0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the High Energy Legal Podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues. Sports, entertainment, politics, nothing is off limits. Keep listening, because this is how we do it.
1: Time for the latest installment of the Legal Face Off Podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brandon, and as always, joined by our two fantastic co-hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery. Tina, how are you doing today? Great. How are you, Joe? Doing well, doing well. And also joined with us, the very mobile, Rich Lenkoff of Bryce Downey. And Lenkov, Rich, great to see you today.
2: Good to see you, Joe. Just coming off uh, the Canadiens' big win in Las Vegas last night. I was there for the game. We'll talk about that more later in the show. But uh, very exciting times for the life of a Canadiens fan.
1: Yeah, we will talk about that. And I think we'll talk about why you have a better seat than your daughter. Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> that was actually my That was actually my niece behind me, so it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> so on to our first topic. On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled against the NCAA over student-athlete compensation. And our first guest joined with us on the Legal Face-Off podcast is Professor Herbert Hovenkamp of the Cary Law School at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Yeah, Professor, Joe mentioned that on Monday in a unanimous ruling, the court held that student-athletes can receive some form of compensation, not as much as some believe they're entitled to. Um, Talk to us about what that ruling uh, signifies, and then we'll get into what they didn't mention, but what's in the future in a moment.
3: Yeah, okay. The the, uh, Supreme Court made it unlawful for the NCAA to limit Educationally related compensation. Those would be things like fellowships or scholarships for uh, post eligibility study after a student was no longer eligible to play and might want to go to graduate school or something. It did not cover uh, the question of salaries for unrelated, for things that were unrelated. That's still uh, left uh, undecided. Uh, So it's a it's a major step. Uh, It doesn't go all all the way that some people wanted to go, which is basically to throw open uh, student compensation to kind of a bidding free for all in which each school could decide how much it wanted to uh, compensate various athletes.
4: So, Professor, in the opinion, as you alluded to, Justice Gorsuch wrote that although the national debate about amateurism in college sports is important, it's not the Supreme Court's job to resolve it. Instead, Gorsuch observed, the court's job is to determine whether the district court properly applied the principles of antitrust law to this dispute. Why didn't the court take the opportunity to address the issue of whether college athletes should be paid?
3: Because it was not on the table, it was a it was a challenge to direct, uh, to direct school related compensation, and not a challenge to the whole question of salaries generally. So the court, you know, made a point of saying this is not on the table. And Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, he's got a brief concurring opinion at the very end. Uh, you know, basically tries to open the gates so that. That second challenge to more uh, open-ended salaries uh, could still be possible. And whatever you might think of amateurism, as far as antitrust goes, this case very largely killed it. Uh, I mean, the de- the definition of amateurism has always been related to uncompensated play, which means you can be, supported for your tuition room and board few collateral expenses but nothing beyond that and I think that is almost entirely off the table now as far as antitrust law is concerned
2: professor we'll talk in a moment about the uh, decision on the ACA and how that the court in that decision um, decided on a you know on a on a standing issue rather than a constitutional issue which is what they've done frequently in the past in this case similarly you know they didn't address the bigger issue that many wanted them to address whether student athletes should get paid but to your point that issue was not in front of them so they only uh, ruled on the antitrust issue but you mentioned Kavanaugh's concurrence which has obviously got a lot of attention because of some of the language he used and you know Kavanaugh is by many accounts the biggest sports fan on the bench Um, he tried to um, make the Yale uh, um, JV team As a basketball player, he also coaches his daughter's basketball uh, teams. Kavanaugh said that the NCAA is not above the law. He said that while college athletics are important traditions that have become part of the fabric of America, apparently, to your point, he's willing to sort of open up those traditions and perhaps in the next case, allow uh, student-athletes to be paid.
3: I think there's two things important to notice about that. Number one is the fact that he said it, but number two is the fact that nobody else joined him. Uh, he was the sole author of that concurring opinion, and this is a year in which we've had many, many concurring opinions, partial dissents, many of them signed by two or three justices, uh, but nobody seemed very interested in diving in with Justice Kavanaugh and, uh, you know, holding the prospect open for a free-for-all, not at this time at least.
4: So, Professor, last question here on Legal Faceoff. This ruling is important in light of the many states' laws allowing student athletes to get paid, many of which are coming into effect as soon as July 1st. How is this ruling going to interplay with those state laws?
3: Uh, it doesn't affect them. doesn't mean that there aren't going to be other questions about their legality, but uh, NCAA is a private organization. It can't... Uh, it, it, it can't overrule state laws. Now, there is some question, of course, about the ability of states to apply their laws extraterritorially. So these laws may apply to games within the state or organizations within the state, but not otherwise. But it's going to be a big mess. Uh, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is that the number of players who would receive the benefit of very high salaries is very, very small. Even among the big football and basketball uh, schools like, you know, Notre Dame or Ohio State, Oklahoma, Alabama, uh, there are a very small number of high players. And it raises a whole bunch of other issues, uh, one of which is Title IX. Title IX uh, prohibits gender discrimination, uh, you know, between male and, uh, and female athletes. Well, the fact is that females... Sports do not pay as much. Uh, They don't generate enough revenue. And so there's going to be questions out there. uh, If we start paying the guys more and more money uh, for male sports, are we going to have to start paying women uh, in proportion? And then to what extent can uh, we differentiate and pay a small group of people very large amounts and other other people uh, much less? These are all problems that are going to have to be worked out.
1: Professor, thanks so much for the time and the knowledge.
0: Okay. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey & Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer, with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, The Greatest Team in Football History, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting legal face-offs since 2013... Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit bdlfirm.com. That's bdlfirm.com.
1: Moving along on the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio, and we move on to the topic of the U.S. Supreme Court recently deciding to dismiss a challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Here to break it down for us is Dr. Richard Tarpey, an assistant professor of management at Middle Tennessee State University. Dr. Tarpey, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to be here.
4: So Dr. Tarpey last week in a 7-2 ruling the Supreme Court again upheld the Affordable Care Act which as we know has been under repeated attack since 2012. Can you please bring us up to speed on this latest decision?
5: Sure. The latest decision from the Supreme Court essentially if you think about it shuts down future challenges from a court perspective. So the group of states led by Texas who are suing to have the entire Affordable Care Act basically repealed on the grounds of constitutionality um, based on the fact that Congress reduced the mandate penalty to be zero dollars. Therefore, since there no longer is a penalty, the, the most recent court decision upheld the Affordable Care Act because it was a tax, essentially, which Congress is within their rights to tax citizens of the United States. Since there no longer was a penalty, the group of states held that The rest of the law should be struck down as well. Interestingly, what this court decided, they didn't even look at did the penalty, can the penalty be severed from the the larger Affordable Care Act and strike down the whole act. This court basically said that this group of states, along with the two individuals that were suing, two individual citizens, didn't have the standing to sue based on those grounds. Therefore, the court never had to deal with the underlying issue of whether the Affordable Care Act is constitutional or not.
2: Yeah, let's pick up on that because that is an issue that the court, this particular court has done before, much to the chagrin of many people who want the court to determine these issues on their substantive rather than technical grounds. And we're going to actually deal with that on our next podcast when we do our Supreme Court roundup for June. But um, talk to us about why you think they did that. I mean, a short answer Yeah. Well, I'll I'll let you jump in on that. But why do you think the court dealt with um, the standing issue rather than deal with the constitutionality of it?
5: Well, it's the easier issue to deal with.
2: Right. Right. So
5: I can't get into their heads necessarily. I don't know them personally, but I have an easy issue where I can defer any judgment on the constitutionality of the act itself and just basically say we don't have to rule on it because you don't have standing to sue. So if you think about any Supreme Court who would strike down the Affordable Care Act, the chaos that it would cause in the healthcare industry in the United States would be huge, right? Everybody has adapted to this Affordable Care Act. To suddenly strike that down immediately, we would have a good year or two of chaos as everybody tries to readjust to how life was before Affordable Care Act. So I think this particular court, at least seven of the justices, found um, a way out. I don't know if that's a great way to put it, but basically a way to not have to settle the issue uh, but still definitively say this is the way it is.
4: So, Dr. Tarpy, and his dissent, Justice Alito called this case the third installment in our epic Affordable Care Act trilogy. At this point, you've mentioned, and it's understandable, that there would have been tremendous chaos with with millions of Americans not having insurance if this had been struck down. What do you think the ongoing debate is likely to look like regarding the Affordable Care Act, both in the courts and in Congress? I mean, it seems that you think that this um, trilogy is the end as far as the courts are concerned. What can we expect in Congress?
5: I think from a congressional perspective now, the question becomes less of repealing the entire act and how do we modify the act? So the Democrats obviously want to expand Affordable Care Act. Republicans at this point are basically saying, what can we do to make the Affordable Care Act livable? I think everybody after this particular decision, or at least for the most part in the coming 18 months, is going to come to the realization the act is here. Now, how do we modify it? Unfortunately, with the congressional makeup we have now, that's not going to be an easy solution given the Senate's 50 50 split. Uh, my expectation is not much of anything is going to get done on the Affordable Care Act in the next 18 to 24 months. But I think everybody's going to be scrambling to see how can we best modify this act to best suit our needs across the two aisles, or across the aisle, I should say. Uh,
2: Dr., last question on uh, legal face-off. So we like to think that these cases operate in a vacuum, and the Supreme Court especially doesn't let public sentiment influence the way they decide these cases. The reality, and we've had dozens of former Supreme Court clerks on our show over the years, is that Uh, Those issues do factor into these decisions, and the Supreme Court doesn't operate um, on some planet, uh, you know, not cognizant of how their decisions affect people. So how much do you think that does influence or did influence their decision in this case, the third case dealing with the ACA? um, And what would be the implication to millions of Americans if they ruled uh, another way on this on this case?
5: That's a great question. You know, I believe everything's interconnected to some degree. So even the justices are influenced by other factors, whether they consciously realize it or not. So if you think about the players and the stakeholders that are involved here, you've got average citizens who just have healthcare and are impacted one way or the other. You have major companies in the United States, Fortune 100 companies that are impacted, such as the large healthcare providers and payers, they're impacted. Based on whether this act continues in its current state or not. And then, of course, you have Congress, who's influenced by everybody. So I think at the end of the day, I firmly believe the justices were not going to strike down the Affordable Care Act for fear of having the Supreme Court being the blame for introducing this type of chaos into the healthcare market of the United States. Um, I really think the lobbyists that are out there in the healthcare industry, let's face it, hospitals have made a lot of money off the Affordable Care Act. Providers have made a lot of money off the Affordable Care Act. Um, All kinds of people are making money off this act. I think there's influence to go around, whether it be through Congress or subconsciously through the justices, if nothing else, to find a way out, which is what they did. right? Not necessarily to influence them to make a decision on the constitutionality of the law, but the influence enough to say, hey, we have a way that we can disperse this case
1: or at least get rid of this case without making that decision. Great insight. Dr. Tarpey, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. My pleasure. Thank you much.
4: We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony, and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com.
1: Moving on with the Legal face off podcast here on WGN Radio, and probably the most recognizable character from the riots at the Capitol on January 6th was the shirtless guy with horns and the painted face. And he's apparently claiming that all Americans had a role in the riots. And with that, we bring in attorney Albert Watkins of Connor & Watkins. Albert, thanks so much for joining us today.
6: My pleasure.
4: So Albert, you represent Jacob Chansley, who's better known as the QAnon shaman, who's been accused of being a leader in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Your client is currently in federal custody, awaiting trial on six criminal charges, including violent entry and disorderly conduct. Can you let us know what the latest is on this case?
6: Yeah, we have an epic battle that is currently being waged to garner the release of Jacob Chansley a remarkably bright, gentle, peaceful shaman, albeit the man who wore a horns and a fur and was shirtless with his tattooed torso exposed to the winter air in DC. He did not exhibit any violence. He did not have weapons. He did not hurt anyone. He did not break through police barricades and in fact, he was as not only as peaceful as any human being could be, as a firm believer in Ahimsa, but he actually helped law enforcement. He garnered he garnered stolen shield back from somebody to give back to the police. He helped the police empty out the Capitol when then President Trump requested that everyone go home. He actually thwarted a theft while inside the Capitol. He is a man with mental vulnerabilities. Those vulnerabilities have been known to the government since 2006 when he was in the military. We only recently got those records. He has been held in solitary confinement like a gulag resident in the Soviet Union of yesteryear. And his mental vulnerabilities have been exacerbated by virtue of being in solitary confinement 22 to 23 hours per day with no end in sight. So, we have worked diligently to put the government in a position of knowledge about my client. I fully expect, given the most recent pleadings that have been filed, that we will have him released in relatively short order.
2: Albert, that's a lot to unpack. I'm sorry so uh your client was not responsible it sounds like for a couple different reasons that you're arguing uh number one that he didn't have the requisite mental capacity maybe you're not saying exactly that but you said he was vulnerable so could you expand a little bit on that and then also if he wasn't responsible is there anyone who was responsible in the
6: uh in the events in january yeah let me be really clear here in the in the In the role as an advocate for a client, any client, I've been doing this for 36 years, practicing in federal courts around the country. There's a difference between seeking exculpation or elimination of exposure to guilt by virtue of mental disease or defect, and then there's an issue of culpability which is like the difference between planning the murder of your wife over the course of a year by slowly poisoning her versus cutting her head off in a fit of rage when you catch her in bed with a postman when you come home from lunch. So at the end of the day, the, the, the advocacy that I'm moving forward with here is that Jacob Chansley was not a leader. He did not lead the charge into the Capitol. He was not violent. In fact, he had pre-existing mental vulnerabilities. That doesn't mean he was not incapable of appreciating that he was somewhere he should not have been. He did not intend to harm. He perpetrated no harm. But the man, and, and it's hard to deny this. So there's only four, five hundred thousand miles of video footage of my client, the most photographed man of the day. He won the costume best costume of the day, contest. He was in a place where he should not have been. But what the government has tried to do, and this is a dialogue we've been working really hard to shift, is they've attempted to label all of those who appeared at the Capitol on January 6th as nefarious minded criminals who are seeking to overthrow the government. When in truth and in fact, The wild majority of these individuals, when you scratch the surface, were law-abiding, no criminal history at all. But they felt in their hearts and their minds like they were there at the special instance and request of their president, helping their president save our country. And whether you want to support Trump or you think Trump is the most dastardly illiterate, Ill-spoken human being in the world is inca- incapable of speaking in complete sentences. It doesn't matter. We have in our nation 74 million people who voted for him. We have in our nation hundreds of thousands who got up off their barco loungers and drove or flew or traveled to Washington, D.C. to listen to this man rant at the ellipse because they thought the president had called them there. These are people who are our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our co-workers, our family. And we can't treat them in a fashion akin to a Khmer Rouge, or we can't put them in a a thought police jail. We can't ignore the fact that each and every one of us need to be bellying up to the bar along with Jacob Chansley and others to own our respective roles in what happened January 6th we all tolerated day in day out the untruths the misrepresentations the out-and-out lies that were that were meted out by the man sitting in the president's office the tweets the social media the orchestrated propaganda we may have voted for For Trump because he was good for our pocketbook, or we liked his stance on right to life, or we liked how he was handling Israel. But at the end of the day, we all tolerated, one way or another, passively or actively, this horrific nonstop propaganda, the likes of which our world has not seen since the late 30s in Munich.
4: So, Albert, one of the other things that you mentioned at the top of our discussion is that prosecutors have intentionally ignored evidence that your client really was not a leader in the attack. Do you care to comment on some of the evidence that they're not paying attention to?
6: We've had the government that has made affirmative rep- misrepresentations to the court like nothing I've ever seen before. I am extremely fond of and respectful of our Department of Justice. I've worked across the courtroom from them for 36 years. I've worked collaboratively with them. I have worked adversarially with them. I hold them in high esteem. They have a huge burden that they bear, a burden of absolute integrity. And that's a burden that the Department of Justice has has worn as a badge of honor. But what I'm seeing here is a wholesale departure from that high standard. They have had since January 9, when my client voluntarily surrendered himself, the flagpole, the flag, and the finial at the top of the flagpole that was carried upright by my client throughout his walking through the Capitol. They've made affirmative representations to the court that my client had a deadly weapon. They made that argument the magistrate hearing in Phoenix. They made it in the initial detention hearing in D.C. And we're in this world of COVID, and we've got these remote hearings, and my client's not right next to me to be able to whisper in my ear. What I found out is, and what the government never told the court, and what the government never did was present that flagpole and that finial to the court for inspection, because if they had, they would have seen that that finial was simply set on top of the pole. It was not nailed in. It wasn't screwed in. The reason it was held upright is because if it was tilted down, the finial would fall off. That was no more a deadly weapon than a crayon on a sidewalk on a hot July day.
2: Albert, last question here on Legal stuff. We're short of time, but we covered you couple of weeks ago, a couple of shows ago, because of some colorful language you used in describing your clients. I want to make sure I quote you correctly and, and I use words that are appropriate for a podcast. You told Talking Points Memo, these are people referring to some of the uh, defendants in the Capitol Ryers, uh situation. A lot of these defendants, they're all effing short bus people. These are people with brain damage. They're effing retarded, but they're our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our coworkers. They aren't bad people. They have They don't have prior criminal history. Now, tell us your strategy in using uh, language like that, because it certainly got a lot of attention nationwide, maybe even around the world. I know you were Uh interviewed by a lot of outcasts. What was your strategy being a veteran litigator like yourself, knowing that this language would generate a lot of controversy, a lot of publicity?
6: Sure. For five and a half months, or just shy of that, I had worked diligently. I had worked diligently utilizing... Politically sensitive language. I was touchy-feely. I almost held hands with people and sang kumbaya to stress the importance of the need for compassion and for the need to deviate from this horrific protocol, placing people in solitary confinement for hundreds of days indefinitely, 22, 23 hours a day. I was witnessing my client, for whom I am an advocate. Unlike all the other clients I represent from that day, they were all released. My client, Jacob Chansley, he has to be in solitary confinement. I knew he was vulnerable to begin with. I knew he had sensitivities, and I was watching him decline day by day, over the phone, in person. And it got just plain tragically sad. We live in a society where everything is sound bite driven. Your news is right off of this. And if that headline, headline doesn't have the right word in it to attract your attention, you won't get people to read the nine lines that are written thereafter. In one sentence, one use of carefully crafted widespread vulgar language to describe many of those who are involved in January 6th. I was able to garner within 24 hours that which I had fought for for five plus months. I got my client the medical health care he needed. I got a medical psych exam ordered. I got him transported out of solitary confinement into a facility for mental health issues. Yeah. Was that sad that that was needed? Yeah, it was.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off. I just want to say that I don't agree necessarily with all of your arguments or all the justifications you're making. That's for a court to decide. But I do want to say that one thing I tell my young attorneys almost every day, and I have a firm with, you know, 30 attorneys, is don't forget you're an advocate. And I come from, I grew up in Canada. My, you know, I spoke French growing up and French word for lawyers, avocat. And I think not enough lawyers today understand that your primary responsibility as an attorney is an advocate. And what you did, like it or don't, and uh, agree with the strategy or not, you nailed it by saying that you were an advocate. And that's so lost in today's society. So I, I, I have a lot of respect for uh, what you did, even though I don't necessarily agree with all of the basics behind it. We thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. My, my pleasure, Rich. And
6: uh, Christina, thank you.
7: You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com.
1: It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. It's time to meet our two guests for this edition. We start with Rachel Herbenko, a managing attorney at Fearless Legal Services. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Our other guest is Pat Milheiser of Milheiser Public Relations. Pat, thanks so much for jumping on.
2: Great to be here. Okay. It's important to know, too, what Pat's you know, background is and why he qualifies as a uh, LFO or as a grab bagger, right? Pat, what's your, what'd you do before you were a publicist? Tell our listeners.
8: Uh, I, I was a journalist for about 15 years, and uh, most people in the legal community would know me from my time. As editor of the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and Chicago Lawyer Magazine, and after that, I served as the director of communications for the Circuit Court of Cook County and Chief Judge Evans uh, for about five years. So uh, I, I've I've been around a bit and uh, look forward
2: to this discussion. And
9: most oh, importantly, very you're... fancy, Pat.
2: <laughs> Sorry, Rich. i tried. All very fancy. You're the one who uh, has to uh, as the uh decision making as to whether sussler or martini get more ink space in the inside out column that was your that was your job the hardest job on the on the the face of the planet
8: well well since tina's here and uh, david isn't i'll say yeah if i had to make a cut it was david
2: for sure good call good call
1: well we start with the legal grab bag podcast with tina getting more FaceTime as she'll start off our topics and tina the department of justice is seeking reinstatement of the death penalty for the boston marathon bomber
4: yeah so back in march just to set some context for our story back in march the supreme court agreed to hear a case which may reinstate the death penalty for the Boston Marathon bomber. And last week, the um, the Department of Justice filed a brief in support of this potential reinstatement. So what the brief claims is that the First Circuit, which was the circuit that was um, deciding this case, the brief claims that that court wrongly vacated the capital sentence and the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this case really to hear two issues and to consider two issues. First, to consider whether the lower court had erred in ruling that the trial judge did not adequately screen jurors for bias. And the second issue is whether the trial judge erred by excluding evidence regarding the bomber's older brother who had actually previously been involved in a triple murder. And so the court is really going to be considering these two issues when all of this started pouring into the press over the past couple of weeks. There were a lot of interviews and a lot of airplay, understandably, with folks who were touched personally by this tragedy. So it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds.
2: Yeah, what I found also interesting was the dichotomy between Biden saying that he doesn't want the death penalty uh, to be carried out under his administration, but it's his DOJ that is seeking to uh, to enforce it. So, you know, I'm not sure. I always waver uh, personally between whether the death penalty should, uh, you know, be something the government pursues or not. Um, but I think you got to defer to the victims generally in these cases, right? And you got to give a lot of weight to how they feel about things. Pat, what's your what's your impression on this story? I, I waver too,
8: because it's, it's, it's something I think this is going to bring the death penalty back to the forefront of our national discussion, because it will be front and center. And I'm glass half full glass half empty on this one, Uh, half full, because I like the fact that the DOJ is independent of the president here, we just left an administration that was uh, using uh, its power to seize journalists' uh, cell phone records, and uh, clearly that, that was wrong. And, and so it's good to see that there is independence here, but the president being personally uh, opposed to the death penalty, I certainly understand that too. And Rich, I think part of the reason we waver is because you look at a case, and this is a case where a, a lot of people personally, we know what happened, you know, this was the, the biggest uh, domestic attack since 9-11 and uh, left us with a feeling of safety being a feeling and, and not reality. So it's, it's hard to get past those emotions. But where, where I come from, uh, I, I believe in a justice system that has broad principles that, uh, that, that doesn't make decisions based on one case. And, and as I get a little older, I have a, a bit more of a challenge with the death penalty. Uh, I, 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 I do kind of side with the folks who, who say it's, 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 it's a barbaric practice because the government is literally taking a life, uh, for somebody who, who will spend their life in prison. So th- those are the two sides I see on it. Good to have an independent department of justice, but, but this is, this is really a tough issue where if we start looking at it on a case by case basis, we're going to waiver by case. And I think it's just better to have Uh, a one-size-fits-all policy in the federal system. Either we have the death penalty or or we don't.
2: Rachel, one of the primary goals of the death penalty um, is not just punitive, but also um, in an effort to dissuade others from taking similar action if they know that they'll be put to death as a result. Do you think that in today's day and age, when we see so many um, attacks, particularly among terrorists, you know, lately, crime seems to be on an upswing, especially here in Chicago. Do you really think that a criminal who might do an act similar to the one done in the Boston Marathon, do you think they'll stop and think, well, you know, these people are on death row, by the way, they'll probably be on death row for 20 years before they're finally executed. Do you think they're going to stop and think I shouldn't do this because of that potential penalty?
9: No. And I mean, I think that's part of the problem with the death penalty and the way it was carried out previously when it was carried out is there's so much opportunity for appeals and there's so much time that it takes to actually get to the point of execution that it, it almost seems pointless. You know, if it was, you're found guilty and you're taken outside and hung, you know, it's one thing, but with the way that our justice system works, it almost seems ridiculous to even have the death penalty. And, uh, you know, a lot of the terrorists, you know, as an example, they're willing to give their lives. So I don't think that, I mean, I don't think that death is really something that they're afraid of. Although, you know, the way that they die, perhaps, is a different situation. Obviously, they'd rather die in the act of doing whatever terrorist act they're doing rather than the death penalty. But it wasn't the crux of this thing the, the fact that the older brother sort of orchestrated this and it was the younger brother that sort of like tagged along or was persuaded to, to do these acts in the first place. Wasn't that the big part of this case? Right. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm kind of like Pat, you know, I, I waver on the death penalty a lot and, and part of it for me is the fact that it takes so long to get there. And then you see all these stories all the time about people that are, executed that weren't guilty, you know, or DNA that finds people innocent when they've been sitting in prison for a number of years. And it's, you know, no justice system is obviously going to be perfect, but it's, you know, on one hand, I'd, I'd like to see the guy put to death, but on the other hand, it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, do I really know all the facts? And you may not ever know what exactly was going on in people's minds during that time.
1: Moving on to a little less serious dilemma from another popular race, Rich uh, Bob Baffert is now suing the New York Racing Association for suspending him after his Kentucky Derby winning horse Venus <laughs> Spirit failed a post race drug test.
2: Yeah, Bob Baffert, probably the most celebrated trainer in uh, racing history, um, probably the only one that most people, most you know, casual sports fans could name. Uh, he was suspended, as you mentioned, from competing in any additional races after he was suspended in the middle of may after like you said his horse madonna spirit tested positive for uh steroids not something we see in the uh, equine world too much but something we see you know in baseball and other sports a lot and now of course as we'll cover later in the show we see the person accused of something wrong turning around and using the legal system on the offensive right it's sort of a a, an old uh, an old playbook that when you are accused of something wrong, turn around and sue your accuser um, because you know, you're know you never at fault. And in this case, it doesn't really matter what Bob Afford is saying. You can, you can imagine what he's saying. He's saying he wasn't afforded due process. He said that the wrong regulatory agency uh, suspended him. Who cares? What he's at the end of the day saying is that even though my horse took steroids, uh, I shouldn't be responsible because I wasn't afforded due process. I think it's all nonsense. I mean, just own up to it. I mean, the horse tested positive for steroids. I think it was a lotion form, and he said it doesn't count because it was in a lotion form. I mean, ironically, Joe, you cover so many you know stories of athletes taking steroids. Like, the cliche is that they took horse steroids, right? You hear that from <laughs> athletes, but this is actual uh, a horse who took horse steroids. So uh, I hope that the book gets thrown at Bafford. I mean, putting aside whether you think that steroids are appropriate or not, It's a horse. It's already strong. It doesn't need more, you know, more help. Tina?
4: I completely agree. And I think to treat this case any differently, just because it's a trainer and a horse versus an athlete that's competing. I I don't think that that would be the right result. And I think that there is likely to be some type of, um, you know, result in, in this case of trying to dissuade others from doing similar things in the future. I mean, at the end of the day, there will be people who are dishonest or who cheat, whatever the case may be um, to win a race. But I agree with you to me. This one seems pretty clear cut.
2: Rachel, he cheated. He got caught. He's now suing. What would you do if you were on the jury?
9: I mean, I think this guy's a sleazebag. bag. I'm sorry. I, I'm not, super into horse racing although i have been more since you know it's legal here now um you know i do watch the derby i did bet on the derby i did not bet on either horse that either won or should have won i know people that bet on the second place horse that are super angry about this entire thing but my understanding is this is not the first time that this guy has been accused of this it seems like he's got a reputation of being kind of a cheater i i don't i don't have any pity for the guy i really don't i mean i don't see i i think it's it's pretty gutsy of him to turn around and sue in this way when he's clearly at fault
2: pat you cover these hundreds and hundreds of stories like this at the law bulletin um where you know the strategy is you're accused of something turn around and sue for lack of due process do you give any credence to bob effort's arguments here <laughs>
8: Well, reading his complaint, it, it does seem like he at least has a legitimate argument of fact. And that is if, if the gaming commission is the one who issued the license, then shouldn't the gaming commission be the only one who can take it away, not the New York racing association? And so it, it, at least there's, there's a decision of fact. And, and I didn't see any precedent cited uh, on that point. So I don't know if in New York, if this issue has, has come up in the past um but but this is like you said this is this is kind of the face of horse racing i mean everybody knows who he is when you see him every derby year and he's banned from uh three prominent tracks one of them being saratoga which opens only for 8 weeks out of the year and is opening up on july 15th i'll actually be there uh shortly after the opening and in, in my family we are very big into horse racing uh, and, and there there's a lot of money to be made and, and lost if you can't race your horses there. So I certainly understand it from a financial standpoint. Uh, but I, on, on the other hand, this raises a lot of it. There is a dark side to horse racing, and it is the treatment of the animals. It is what's put in them. It's what happens to them when they're not able to run anymore. They are put down. They, they don't all have a great life unless they're uh, 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 have a second life as a stud where, where they're producing uh, the next million dollar winners. So it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting time for horse racing to have the face of, of your sport uh, going through this. Uh, But, but at the end of the day, the fans, I, I don't know how much attention they pay to it. You know, they, they go, to place their bets and make their money and feel like a genius when you, when you hit the trifecta.
9: I think they're only complaining if they had the second place horse that should have, should have won. I mean, honestly, it's all about money with, with horse racing. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. And, well, and it, there's also, a, it also,
2: it also always bugged me. We got We got to keep moving, but it also always bugged me that Bob Baffert always gets the attention. I'm like, how about the guy racing,
6: riding the horse?
2: Isn't that guy important yet? No one on earth can name that guy, the jockey, oh. but Bob Baffert gets all the, uh, all the attention. But let's keep moving. It's a great topic, but Joe, what do we got?
1: Yeah, I, I just feel bad about all the foals and ponies that are let down, knowing that their hero, Medina Spirit, is actually a cheater. <laughs> <in the laughs> right. All those kids. <laughs> uh, Such
9: a role speaking, model.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, speaking of a cheater, Dippin' Dots' CEO is being accused of revenge porn lawsuit by his ex-girlfriend, Rich.
2: Yeah, this uh, this is CEO Stephen Scott Fisher, who, according to the lawsuit filed by Amanda Brown, who dated him purportedly for about two years, uh, in the wake of their breakup, he uh, allegedly harassed her um, about the breakup that happened in 2020, uh, used her private sexual images to control her, the lawsuit alleges. Uh, again, she says that he engaged in a relentless and vicious campaign of harassment culminating in his non-consensual dissemination of her private sexual images to third parties, including her own mother. So we've seen these kind of cases before, right? Revenge porn, obviously a pretty despicable act. Um, notable in this case, obviously, because it's you know, involving someone who uh, is a very prominent businessman, um, CEO of a, of a huge company. So um, he, of course, has denied it. And as frequently it happens in these cases, Tina, you know, you, you victim blame and you victim shame. Um, It's frequently hard for accusers, particularly women to get a fair shake. So I think that plays into this case as well.
4: Well, absolutely. Because, and I, I think part of the reason for that is because the pictures are of the person, right? And so the person whose pictures are being disseminated in this cruel way um, ultimately, you know, you've got people who wrongfully shame them because it because they're the ones that are in the pictures. But I know we've covered stories like this before, Rich, on the show. And I think it just points to the need to have laws that have some teeth where people can be protected from this type of behavior.
2: Yeah. And again, Pat, I mean, this is a lawsuit. This is not a criminal charge. Right. There's a major difference there. And you can sue anyone for anything in this country. It doesn't mean that it has any merit. And of course, over the last couple of years, we've seen, you know, many allegations against uh people in power. And there seems to be a shift a little bit now towards not automatically believing that the accused is guilty, maybe giving them their day in court. It's a very tough dichotomy because you want to give the accuser respect and you want to honor their ability to come out, especially, with you know, given such difficult circumstances, but you also, to be fair, want to give the accused their due process. So, uh, I know again, you know, in, in your time of the do- law, Bolton, you cover these stories, uh, lots of these kind of stories.
8: And what's changed is unfortunately for the accused is the evidence, um, through the power of cell phones. Right. We, they have everything. And this was stuff you could, you could tell me, we all know, uh, 20 years ago didn't really exist just like this, but, with the text messages, with the text being sent, you are literally providing the evidence to um, the victim, the alleged victim here. And the hardest part for me, the part where I had to put the story down was, was where I, I read he sent it to the woman's father. And, and that just kind of floored me. I couldn't imagine receiving a text like that. And uh, that's going to be uh, pretty strong evidence in this case.
2: Rachel, I imagine knowing you for as long as I have, we've known each other for you know about twenty years, practice together. Uh, I have a feeling that you're not buying any different dots anytime soon.
9: No, I mean this guy's like the Willy Wonka of ice cream, and he's like doing revenge porn stuff. I mean, I don't know, I, any anything involving revenge porn for me, I'm out. I don't care what your excuse is. I don't care who you sent it to. There's 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 no excuse for me um i i mean pat's right you send it to her parents i mean what what are you trying to achieve by that besides being a giant jerk i mean there's just there's no i feel like that's the the worst possible thing that you can do i i don't feel any any pity for this guy whatsoever and i you know tina's right too i mean there should be better better laws for this kind of stuff i mean even the the harassment and stuff that went with it i mean people are not protected well enough when it comes to the ability for people to stalk them especially with all of the technology that we have now it's it's so easy for people with with technology to be stalked and in the texts and the videos and the photos I mean me personally you will never find a naked picture of me anywhere just saying just for that primary reason but um, you know, you never know whose hands those things are gonna get into, but yeah. We it's,
2: can't it's, we can't sh- we cannot say the same for Joe Brand, actually, which is a whole other
9: <laughs> I mean you can photoshop topic. my head onto somebody, but it's never gonna be a legit thing. Plus I've been married for twenty years, so that you know, we're beyond that point anyway. But I mean honestly, I think it's it's terrible. Like whatever whatever money she gets from this guy is not gonna be enough, in my opinion.
1: I actually can't have a designed background because all my file storage is filled up. I'm like, <laughs> nice. <laughs> don't hit
2: the wrong button, Joe. For God's
1: sake. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Do they still call Dippin' Dots the ice cream of the future, or are we just in the future right now? Do they I still don't know. That's a good. I think they dropped. It. Wow,
2: blowing my mind with that question, Joe. It's it's a good <laughs> question.
1: Everyone keeps talking about this day and age, all the technology now. Yeah. Like, Aaron, it's it's not so much the kid. future anymore. Uh, Moving on to a Texas high school student that is suing her school because she claims that one little miscalculated point is costing her tens of thousands of dollars for a college scholarship. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest. I forget. Tina Rich. Tina Rich. Who's taking this one?
4: It's
2: a huge. I I mean, no. (laughs) You know the interesting part of the story. I mean, listen. I, you know how much I hate stories of people. Using, misusing, abusing the court system. Although, on the other hand, if they weren't doing that, I probably wouldn't be employed. So, you know, this is a good example at first glance. On the other hand, you know, as a father of, of someone who is going to be applying to college in a short period of time, I know Rachel's in the same boat. Um, you know, you do wonder if the legal system is the right avenue for this. And again, to be, you know, the story involves this uh, young uh, student who says that because of one points being miscalculated she did not get it she was not the valedictorian that led to her not getting the school she wanted she would have gotten scholarship money it actually led to actual damages that are calculable which is a big deal because frequently tina we talk about well okay maybe you're wrong but how is the court supposed to attach actual verifiable damages well in this case she's saying that you know she actually lost out on um tuition uh, that she would not have had to pay she now has to pay but I think generally these stories are nonsense. I mean, you know, stop whining. Uh, you're not guaranteed anything in school. And if it was a judgment call, get the hell out of here. Of course, if there was a mistake, that's a different story. But, you know, like in sports, mistakes are built into the system. And I don't think you get to sue your school or your teacher because there was a miscalculation if there was one.
4: Well, I mean, my opinion is, I mean, I agree with you generally, Rich, but the sense I got, at least based on what I saw, is that there seemed to be a couple things going on here. It seemed like there was a miscalculation. Um, It does seem like it really made a big difference for her in terms of where she ended up going to school and the whole scholarship situation. It also seemed like there was some... um, I guess, lack of clarity as to how people's GPAs were going to be calculated in the first instance, because it appeared that there were certain classes that would get counted towards somebody's GPA and certain classes that weren't. And I think that was the type of error that she pointed to that led to the miscalculation of her GPA. So I guess the word, a word to the wise in terms of schools and dealing with people's GPAs is, you know, be sure that you're calculating it properly and don't make mistakes. But, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you. But in this instance, I can I can understand where she's coming from. But,
2: I mean, okay. let's stipulate to that, that it, you shouldn't make mistakes. But, Rachel, like, is the legal system the proper form for that? Isn't, they, isn't there some kind of due process, generally, that you can go through uh, with your school to determine if there were mistakes and to rectify them? Who wants to clog up the legal system with this nonsense? I don't know.
9: I mean, how much money is she spending on lawyers to litigate this? Right. Like, are you spending a whole other college tuition on this? (laughs) I mean, honestly. Well, she
2: says that it costs. uh, it's a difference of $31,000 a year based on her not being a valedictorian. So that's not a small amount of money, Pat. I mean, $120,000 a year over the course of her college career is not a small amount of money.
8: No, and and no is the answer to your question of should this be in the legal system? No, the adults in the school system or system should get together and figure something out. Because if you missed valedictorian by one point, and it's questionable whether you did or not, can't just two kids get the scholarship? Why does there just have to be one for both of them to be fighting over here?
2: Similarly, not to diminish the importance of of this story, but last night, when I was in Las Vegas, we went to a, we had a dinner reservation at nine fifteen, and we showed up at nine seventeen, and they wouldn't seat us. <laughs> I know these are champagne problems, my friend, but you sue- to, <laughs> to, to pa- I might, I might sue that to pass point. I mean, it's the equivalent of being one, one point off validatory. I was
1: two minutes off and it turned us away. How did you sign that
9: episode?
2: Two yeah,
1: minutes. Right? How did you start this topic? Wasn't there a oh boohoo for you or something like that? Where's?
2: I mean admittedly it is a champagne problem that i was I was turned away from a steakhouse in Las Vegas for being two minutes late was but,
8: it would you accept a
2: settlement of a glass of champagne exactly no way Great I dinner. want my I want
1: my damages. A lot of layers to this next story, but we'll just go with the main headline. A federal judge does not think that Jeremy Ronick was fired for being a heterosexual man. Rich, this story's kind of been going on for a couple of years now. Uh, it's kind of wild how it started, too. Chicago sports legend. Well, there's a theme today.
2: We got a couple uh, Chicago sports legends in the in the legal hot water. We'll cover the the next one here in a second, but yeah, Jeremy Ronick I mean, Chicago sports legend, 20 year NHL career, longtime Blackhawk. Um, you know, great player after he left the ice. He went into the booth. Uh, I think he was employed by NBC Sports since 2010. Um, you know, pretty successful broadcaster. And he did a show with Catherine Tappan. I watch the show all the time. Uh Catherine Tappan is the host, and by all accounts, they are good friends off the ice. They went on vacation together and on a bar stool podcast called Spitting Chiclets. Great name, by the way. Not as great as Legal Faceoff. Uh, Ronick made an off-color comment about. Uh, being on vacation with Catherine Tappan and his wife, and the three of them should have a threesome. He was uh, summarily fired by NBC for that statement. And uh, he filed a lawsuit in federal court saying that I was fired not because of my off-color statement, but for two reasons, Joe. That, number one, I am a Trump supporter, and my boss at NBC Sports uh, commented that being a Trump supporter or going, actually, he asked to speak at the 2016 um republican national convention and his boss said no look who you work for that's not an nbc thing number one is his allegation i was fired because i support trump number two more interestingly he says he was fired in this lawsuit because he was a heterosexual and he gave his at first glance that seems like a really silly allegation but actually i'm not saying it's not silly but he gave us a comparison that on the nbc olympics broadcast from a couple years prior Johnny Weir, who is a uh, a gay man, um, said that he should have an affair with his former partner, not his former partner, his broadcast partner, Tara Lipinski. And his allegation is that, well, that is a similar off-color comment about having sex with a coworker. But because Johnny Weir is gay and I'm heterosexual, he did not suffer the same repercussions that I did. He's still employed by NBC. I'm not. Dismissed by the federal court. Not a terrible argument, in my opinion. Not, not, I mean, it makes you fake actually, that argument. So I don't know. Tina, it seems like a silly argument to say I was fired because I was a heterosexual, but it's kind of an interesting point.
4: And it's an interesting point. I mean, I guess with the cards that are, that are as they are in this game, in this hand, so to speak, I, I think that that was probably the argument he had to make. But ultimately, I think it's right that that that, that was thrown out.
2: So. Well, why? But why? We'll open this up. Here. Why should Johnny Weir, who's a gay former athlete, be able to talk about having sex with a female co-worker, but Jeremy Roenick, who's a heterosexual, was fired because of that? Anyone? Rachel?
9: I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think he's wrong. I think the argument, when you articulate it out loud, sounds completely asinine, but he's not wrong. I... I I mean, it's a
2: double standard. It seems like a double double standard, standard, right? There's 100%
9: a double standard.
2: I think so, too. And again, I didn't come to that conclusion until this afternoon when I was reading the story again. And, you know, Jeremy Roenick is not known to be a legal trailblazer, Pat, but (laughs) it's certainly an interesting argument that I think he's raised. And and again, you could talk about, you know, why the standard for allowing cases to go before a jury and dismissing them. We don't want to get into the weeds on that, but. In this case shouldn't that have at least been an issue for a jury to decide
8: well i i think the the judge kind of made the point that what you heard on barstool sports was a lot more explicit than what you heard on a an nbc skit and if you go if you google uh the jeremy roenick barstool sports interview and you go to the 33 to 34 minute mark you can listen to it for yourself i uh I don't know if this is a family show, uh, so I won't get into everything he said. <laughs> would you let your but, kids
4: listen to it, Pat? That's the question. <laughs> uh,
8: no, no, definitely not. De- absolutely I not. Mean, Nor would, it, would I let them to listen to the end of it, where he's talking literally about uh, actual uh, sexual escapades at, at the end of the, of the podcast. So I'll just point
2: I, out, though, Pat, but I'll just jump in and point out that what Gronick said was on a bar stool podcast that's not right. his employer what johnny weir said was on an nbc national sportcast for the olympics you don't get a much bigger stage than skit?
4: that rich i thought it was like a skit that had actually yes. the impression i got was that nbc had approved it because it was a skit like more of like a joke type of a
2: thing yeah, but who cares I and mean, one person's skit is another person's insult i mean i don't think it matters whether they intend it as a skit the fact is, he's talking about having sex with a coworker. If that's wrong, that's wrong, and I think it's wrong. Let's let's be clear. But, but, I don't think you should be talking about having was, sex with a coworker.
8: It, it was a skit on the NBC side, and on the, and and Rich, just to go back to your point when we were talking about the death penalty, we we're talking about victims, right? And there was a victim in uh, Ronick's statement: the coworker. She says she still remains friends with him, but absolutely did not like the fact that he said that. That was totally that's a good point. inappropriate. Yeah, that's a good so, point. so there is a, the, the distinguishing factor is it, there's a there's a realistic difference where you do have a victim in one and not in other. And I think I would assume that was, you know, the, the judge is living in reality here. And and he made that distinction that only uh, Jeremy Roenick is the one who was talking uh, about having sex with a coworker, uh, and I, I believe he's focusing on the explicit terms that were not present in the NBC skit.
7: That's so, a fair do you
8: point. think
9: it would have been different though if the coworker would not have been offended?
8: We. Well, For we sure. don't For know sure. because your employer, yeah, your employer, the employer has to react to 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 the coworker. Uh, uh, we've we've seen that before. We've seen it here on the local level. Uh, w- w- uh, so I, I think the employer has to react that the that there is a victim who is an employee who has a problem with what was said.
9: Okay. I mean, I I I, I see it differently. If she was actually hurt and offended by it. I mean, it. that makes me see it differently. But from my perspective, it's like, you know, I kind of agree with Rich. I mean, it wasn't on NBC. It's on Barstool Sports, which is a completely different venue, you know, than NBC commentary is. And I, you know, I do feel there is somewhat of a double standard for, for men, you know, especially in, in that arena, you know, and what can be said and not said. And I mean, I even wonder if a woman made some sort of commentary about that, if there would have been such a big deal made. Honestly,
1: you know, we move on from J.R. to Jay-Z and Damon Dash of Rockefeller Records still thinks he's going to be able to sell NFT versions of Jay-Z's albums, even though he's been denied a few times before.
4: Yeah, so Rockefeller Records sued its co-founder, Damon Dash, who, as you said, Joe, was trying to auction Jay-Z's debut album, Reasonable Doubt, as an NFT, which we have talked about quite a bit here on Legal Face Face Off. And so what the issue is, is that um, at the end of the day, Rockefeller argued that it's the label that owns the rights to the album and not Dash. So he's not able to... To auction it off as an NFT. So earlier this week, the court ruled in Rockefeller's favor. So that put the kibosh on the NFT sale. What's really interesting though is that Damon Dash has since told numerous news sources that it really isn't that that Rockefeller essentially has it all wrong. That what he's not he's not trying to sell an NFT of Jay-Z's debut album. What he's really trying to do is sell his share in Rockefeller Records. And he claims that Jay Z made an offer for that share, but that it was not a reasonable offer. And so he's still shopping his stake around in Rockefeller Records. It's just it's you know it makes you wonder. And I just put this in the bucket of why can't people get along? These are first world problems.
2: Yeah, I mean I'm still getting my head around NFTs. The, the, The good news for lawyers is there's going to be a ton of brand. Just when you thought we've seen every lawsuit under the sun. NFTs opens a whole Pandora's box because most of us don't even understand what they are. We've gone through it on this show. But yeah, there's going to be a ton of uh, of additional litigation, obviously, in the intellectual property area. So Tina, stay tuned. Lots of more questions on uh, NFTs coming up on our show.
4: Maybe I should make it a specialty in my practice.
2: There you go.
1: All right. On to the last topic. And as we mentioned, another Chicago athlete or at least former Chicago athlete, we're now kind of finding out why it was such an awkward exit for Ben Zobrist, finishing his baseball career. And with the Chicago Cubs, he alleges that his wife was having an affair with their pastor and the pastor was stealing money from Zobrist's charity.
4: Yeah, this is just a really tough story. I mean, all of us remember back in 2019 when Ben Zobrist made an exit in the middle of the season, and um, there was airplay about why that was going on. He mentioned that it was family issues. So as it turns out, he's suing his former pastor, Byron Yawn, which that's quite a name, um, for $6 million in damages, and he's accusing Yawn of fraud. Apparently, his former pastor was actually having an affair with Zobrist's wife while he was trying to provide Zobrist with marital counseling. Mm -hmm. Um, We all remember when Zobrist filed for divorce, his now ex-wife filed a counter complaint um, a few months after that. Um, You know, it was interesting, you know, reading just the information about this case that Zobrist is claiming that one of the things that he was being counseled by his former pastor to do was to give his ex-wife some space He's also claiming, you know, beyond just the needing to leave the season early and forfeiting what, several million dollars in, in money, he's also claiming that there were donations that he made to the charity that were done because of Yan, and that Yan has all, also taken undue advantage of Zobrist by not only having him sign autographs and so forth, but revolving certain functions around him that were really fundraisers and were really to help um, Jan, you know, boost himself up and become the executive director of the charity. So, um, you know, you really can't make this stuff up.
2: Yeah, he was saying, give her a lot of space <laughs> so I could I could have sex with her, basically. Yeah. That's why she needs more space. I mean, it's, uh, it's an amazing uh, misuse of marital counseling funds that they were paying this guy. A ton of money, and then he uh, he decided to have an affair with her, and my favorite part is the his lawyer said basically, the heart wants what the heart wants right I mean <laughs> a, he, he he's turning it around and making it a women's rights um, issue by saying, you know women are allowed to choose who they have sex with, but by the way, it doesn't matter if that person happens to be a therapist or a pastor that you were paying to help remedy the issues in your marriage yeah. so and my other my other takeaway is you know I'm a Jewish individual myself, and I'm not sure about this pastor thing. Aren't pastors supposed to be celibate, or that's a that's a priest? Pastors are allowed to have.
4: Well, it's a- no, this pastor is married. Yeah, I mean, like I think the celibacy is really in Catholicism.
9: Ah, yeah. Okay. This pastor was married, and in fact, his well, wife was the one that told Ben that they yes. were having an affair. God, I have Man. so much to say on this story. I could talk <laughs> for like two hours.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, give us the sixty seconds for Benko somewhere.
9: Please. I am team Ben all the way on this story. I mean, this pastor's got some cojones, I got to (laughs) say. I mean, you're counseling a guy whose wife you're having an affair with. He's collecting a $3,500 a month salary from this charity. He's using Ben for his celebrity, collecting all kinds of money, getting game tickets Having him give autographs, having him sign all this stuff, telling his wife or telling him to give his wife space so he can go out and have sex with his wife. Seriously, I am I am appalled by everything about this story. I it makes me sick.
2: Pat, it's a, it's enough to make you a uh, a White Sox fan. Uh,
8: no, not not me though. Sometimes I gotta go back and forth because half half the family is Sox fans by me, uh, but I am a Cub fan and I grew up. Near Wrigleyville, and I think all Cub fans are sad at the way this is. Uh, this is the story for Ben Zobras. He was a big hero in Game Seven in 2016. We all know the image of him jumping up and down on second base when he got the big hit late in the game. Great guy from Illinois. I, I just, I, it, it obviously got to a point where they had to put all this out publicly. And and her lawyer essentially confirmed it, like you said, Rich. He didn't deny it. He didn't deny the affair. And I, I just, it's sad. It's sad because they have three kids, and you know, it, someday those kids are going to grow up and, and be able to read about this on the internet. And very and very wh-
2: unfortunate. Yeah, that's where my mind goes uh, uh, yeah, to to to,
8: to end it for me. Is it's salacious details and good reading, but sad ending all around.
2: Well, let's turn on let's talk about an up, uh, an upbeat story, my friends, because I'm a big Cubs fan. I was there for game 7. Um, but the story of the day, Joe, as you know, is the Montreal Canadiens, my hometown team, my favorite team of all time. I was at the game last night as the Canadiens took a resounding 3-2 lead in the conference semifinals over the Las Vegas Knights. And tomorrow night we're going to close out Vegas to go to the Stanley Cup Finals, my friends, for the first time since 1993.
1: I got Let's no go Habs. I got no dog in this fight. Go Habs, go! I'm I'm Team Rich. I'm Team Canadians. And it, remember, it's the Stanley Cup Final, not the Stanley Cup. Yeah, it's Cup
4: not final. the finals, Rich. What's wrong with you?
1: He hasn't I'm been there
2: really. in so long. You have no standing to criticize my pronunciation of the Stanley Cup final as American. So get the must, hell out of here.
4: Must be the Canadian. <laughs> no, I think you need to get the hell out of here. You're on our territory.
1: Yeah, well, not <laughs> for not long. Only that, oh, when, st- when's the last Stanley Cup championship by a Canadian team? I forget. That is 1993, unfortunately. Okay, there you go. Well, Rich, I
4: think we should do um, a, a legal face-off show where you do it in French and I do it in English.
1: <laughs> You're on. For sure. Let's do yeah. it.
4: Subtitles
1: And, and I'll, do it in, I'll do it in sarcasm. <laughs> Let's all right. go. Go Habs, go. Uh, big thanks to Rachel and Pat, along with all our other guests today, Albert Watkins, Dr. Tarpey, Professor Hovenkamp, and of course, our producers, Emily Flores, Gabrielle Headley, and Ben Anderson. For Rich Lenkoff, for Tina Martini, Not I'm Jill Ben the other Ben. No, yeah, I, I almost the said Ben's that. I almost said that. For Ben the Zobrist Anderson, I'm Joe Brand. Thanks for listening to Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich
0: Linkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your theory. You got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports Hollywood and don't forget.